Welcome back to the program. For 10 days in March 1971, the Rolling Stones traveled by train and bus to play two shows a night in many of the small theaters and town halls where their careers got started. There were no backstage passes and no security and no sound checks or rehearsals, and only one journalist allowed to follow them. That journalist was my guest, Robert Greenfield. He now gives us a first-hand account of that landmark event in his new book, Ain't It Time We Said Goodbye. Robert Greenfield is a former associate editor at the London Bureau of Rolling Stone magazine. He's the author of many classic rock books, and it is my pleasure to welcome him here to talk about Ain't It Time We Said Goodbye, The Rolling Stones on the Road to Exile. Robert Greenfield, thanks so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. I'm, I'm happy to be here. Great to have you here. Why this book now? It's certainly been, uh, what, 40-some-odd years since. Why, why now? It, it's been 40 very odd years <laughs> since. Uh, um, it's, the question is well asked. You know, I, I guess I could say it's my back pages. I, I could say I was going through the closet in the office, you know, and found something at the bottom. But uh, what I realized was, and I say this in the book, no one ever forgets their first tour with the Rolling Stones. And many of those, <laughs> many of those are no longer with us. Uh, they, they might remember their first tour, but they didn't survive it. And uh, it struck me that because I don't seem to throw things away, and I kept these two spiral-bound notebooks, uh, which I had filled with information. Uh, no one saw me take notes on the tour. I would go to these freezing cold laboratories all over England to write down what I had just seen and heard. Um, that I had a record of a tour that represents the end of the first chapter of the Rolling Stones' career. Um, uh, you know, you mentioned some of the characteristics of the tour. It's absolutely something that uh, will never come again. The next time they go out, I mean, the next time I go out with them, because the book is also a memoir uh, after the tour of the time I spent living in Keith Richards' uh, Pleasure Dome by the Sea, Villanelle Cut, and then my time with the Stones um, in America on the American tour in 1972. The book ends in Jamaica when they're recording Goat's Head Soup. But in this period of time... There's about 14 months between the English tour and the American tour, and they bear no relationship to one another whatsoever. How is this book different, perhaps, than if you had decided to write it 20 years ago? How is your <laughs> view different? How have your views changed? What's different, do you think? Uh, well, it's a, it's a great question. Uh, the book, uh, in large part, is actually a dialogue between... Uh, the narrative of the tour as it takes place, as it was uh, recorded in my notebooks. And that's me at the age of 25 and a half, having never been on the road with any band ever, not knowing what's going on around me. There's a rock and roll soap opera of major proportions occurring. You know, it's kind of like Days of Our Lives. The split between Mick and Keith is beginning. The, you know, Keith is with Anita Pallenberg, the actress. Mick is about to marry Bianca. They don't like one another. Everything that's about to happen to the Stones in the next five years is bubbling under the cover of night during this tour. But I am so oblivious that I don't really, I'm just too busy having fun, as we say, you know. So the book becomes a dialogue between the way it seemed to me then and what I've learned about it since. And to answer your question, the only reason we're discussing this book is because the Stones are on the road right now uh, as we talk. 
So in the past 20 years, if it was ever in doubt, I think the Rolling Stones have proved to everyone uh, that of all the bands of that era, uh, this is the one, this is the little engine that will not stop. Uh, they continue to perform, they continue to record music, some of which is still pretty good, and in terms of their configuration, because it's still Mick and Keith and Charlie, they are the only band that still most closely resembles the way they were 50 years ago. Do you see that as a, as a positive or a negative? The fact that in 50 years, arguably, they haven't changed all that much. I mean, certainly, the, yeah. you know, the old adage, just play the hits is fine. But, yeah. but they've evolved in some ways, but not in others. It's, it's very well said. I mean, of course, uh, on this tour, which I think people will really be interested in reading about, I got to stand on stage at the piano every night for two shows a night. It was just the Rolling Stones. Uh, they had uh, two horn players, uh, Bobby Keys and Jim Price. Uh, they had the great Nicky Hopkins, who lived in Marin County for a while, who's not with us anymore, playing piano on some songs, and Ian Stewart, who had been their original piano player and then become their road manager, who's no longer with us, playing piano on other songs, but no backup singers, no, uh, you know, no extended instrumental backups, no, just them. And they were astonishing. They were just incredible. Uh, to answer your question about whether it's good or bad, that they're still out there doing all this. I mean, I, you know, I was fortunate enough to work with the, the late Bill Graham on his book, and, and Bill, who was the expert on all such matters, would have answered your question by saying, if they weren't any good, nobody would want to come see them. Uh -huh. So that's the real point here, is that when they perform now, give Mick Jagger credit, uh, uh, he's still able to whip that audience into a frenzy. Why do you think they still perform now? I mean, certainly it's not for the money. I mean, what what is it about performing? What is it about in their DNA that still puts them out on the road at this age? Well, someone who knew them very well, Marshall Chess, uh, who was the head of Rolling Stones Records and the son of Leonard Chess, the founder of Chess Records, said to me that the reason Mick and Keith do this is because the only time they feel alive is when they're on stage. Now, obviously, <laughs> they're alive when they're off stage, but this for them has become the buzz. This is the true addiction, uh, the rush, the adrenaline rush they get still from being up there in front of all, the, the, all those people. You know, if you think about it, this is what they do. This is all that they have ever done. And uh, why would they stop? I mean, there have been so many, you know, every tour, oh, yeah, this is the last one. Uh, it's never the last one. We're getting closer to that, just chronologically. But again, people are more than happy. To, and they just played in Israel. And, and Jagger was speaking to the crowd in Hebrew. <laughs> Can you top that? You know? <laughs> Is there anybody else, are there any other groups that, that even come close in terms of longevity? Well, the Who are still kicking. You know, the Who probably will come back uh, and play. Uh, we will never see Led Zeppelin back together again. Uh, I'm searching my memory here at a recently, <laughs> recently early hour of the morning, but the answer would be no. I mean, the Beatles had broken up shortly before 
1971 farewell tour of England, you know. Uh, you know, I would, uh, you tell me, I, 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 they're it, you know. Talk a little bit about coming back to 1971 and this uh-huh. tour and, and, and a little bit about what got it started. What was the preparation like for it? What, what drove it? Well, the, the the premise, the reason for it was that the Stones had to leave England, and the Stones had to leave England because, and this is something that now seems impossible to understand, they had already been really famous for five years on both sides of the Atlantic, but they were dead broke, and they were dead broke because they had been managed by the late Alan Klein, who also managed the Beatles at the same time, uh, they owed a fortune of money to what in England is called the inland revenue. They were in like the 90% tax bracket. And so the only way they could pull themselves out of this financial hole, they were just leaving Decca Records and signing a very lucrative contract with Atlantic Records, Ahmed Erdogan, the head of Atlantic, uh, to have their own label distributed. So they're about to leave the land of their birth. I mean, to this point in time, they're all completely English, and they've been to America, but just to tour. They have lived in England. They're born in England. They're completely English. The way they look at everything is, reflects the way England was back then. And so this is a kind of a sincere gesture on their part to go around England one last time before they have to absent themselves and, and go into exile. The insanity of the timing is that because they have to leave before the taxes are due, they have already completed recording Sticky Fingers, which will become their greatest commercial success to date. But the album's not out. It hasn't been released yet. And night after night on this tour, as you said, two shows a night, I'm watching them do, for the first time anywhere, basically, uh, songs like Bitch, Brown Sugar, Wild Horses. No one in the audience has heard this music. Uh, no band ever tours now without an album that they're trying to peddle by appearing in your, in your neighborhood. But this is the insanity of the way they did their business back then. It, it literally made no sense. One thing you write a lot about, and you've touched on it, the tensions that existed within the group at the time. To what extent did those tensions impact and in some ways perhaps even drive the music itself? Well... It's, it's, it's hard to say. I mean, Keith on stage back then was extraordinary. He was like a wild animal that had been let out of a cage. And, and I should also note that he, he was never on time for a single show. He played every show, but he was traveling separately with Anita, their young son, Marlon, and someone who's also not with us anymore, Graham Parsons, a very talented singer-songwriter who was in The Birds and The Flying Burrito Brothers. I don't think that the, the dynamic aspect of the stage performance came from any kind of antipathy between Mick and Keith. I mean, they've been doing this for a long time. And, you know, you need to remember as well that this was Brian Jones's band. And Brian was the great musician and the guiding influence in forming the Rolling Stones and then fell apart before their very eyes. So... You know, when there is a sacrificial lamb in the band, which Brian was, and someone you can blame kind of brought Mick and Keith together. Now that Brian is gone, and Keith seems to be heading down the same path Brian was on, uh, there's definitely a lot of tension going on here, but it's English tension. Nobody is screaming at anybody. They never talk about it. But what happens 
what happens then is when they go to the south of France and they start recording Exile in Main Street, uh, on Main Street in the basement of Keith's house, no less, the album becomes, quote-unquote, Keith's album. It's the kind of music he wants to play, but Keith's drug use is getting to a level where nobody can tolerate it, where it's almost impossible to work with him. And now we have what's coming, which is, as you'll learn in the book, the Stones almost broke up in that period, basically because they thought Keith was going to be in jail for so long that they were going to have to bring... Some, Mick was going to bring someone in to replace Keith on tour to play guitar. Talk a little it, bit about your relationship with them, what oh, that was like. Well, well, my relationship with them was, I don't know, I guess I would characterize it as odd or bizarre in that uh, when I started the tour, um, no one introduced me to anybody. I don't think any of them, with the possible exception of Mick, who would have had to approve uh, the, the, you know, the allowance of a writer on, on tour. None of them knew who I was. They didn't know what I was doing on the tour. I, I think they probably thought I was a roadie or maybe some PR guy. Uh, so it wasn't as though they related to me in any respectful, you know, like, oh, this guy is from Rolling Stone magazine. It wasn't like that at all. It was just like, oh, hello, how are you tonight? You know, and so gradually, it's a very slow process. Uh, I never took notes where they could see me do so. I didn't really interview them. I just hung out, which is a, a concept as well from another planet. And there's an incident at the end of the tour where Mick Jagger, who's been really nice to me throughout the course of the tour, uh, kind of really gets in my face and accuses me of not having you know, paid any attention to what's been going on, not knowing a single thing about what the tour was about. Uh, and then I did an article that appeared in Rolling Stone that I assume they liked because well, it was pretty accurate because I had written everything down. And, you know, I kind of earned my way with I thought I would never see them again after being uh, dressed down by uh, Mr. Jagger. But um, I think the work I did earned my way with them. And then I was selected to do the Rolling Stone interview with Keith and wound up living with him for several weeks in the south of France. And, and, you know, and then I just kept seeing them. And I was in Los Angeles when they completed uh, mixing Exile on Main Street. And then I was on the road with them in America. And then I wrote a book about it. Uh, but it's not as though I'm hanging out with them these days. <laughs> when you went back to do this, after you found those, those yeah. notebooks in the closet, were there mm -hmm. others that you talked to that saw them play on that tour in 1971? And talk a little bit, if you did, about what those memories were like for others. Well, I did, I did of course, go back and interview several people who had been uh, on the tour. Um, Chip Monk, who was who used to be known as the voice of Woodstock, a fabulous lighting designer who was their stage manager. Uh, other people who worked on the crew, uh, the gentleman over there who promoted it. I spoke to Jim Price, who played horn, played trumpet on that entire tour. What's really interesting, and now we, you know, now you get into the human mind and what happens when you get older, is that I was sitting there with the notes. The notes had been taken while everything was going on around me. People told me stories that were so conflated in that they had the cities wrong. They had the incidents wrong. You know, the human mind takes what has happened and kind of embroiders it and, you know, 
paints it by numbers and changes things. And I mean, I found out some things I didn't know, <laughs> but what I think I basically found out from most of the people I interviewed was not, especially guys who, I mean, listen, to be fair, many of the people I talked to for this book this time around had been on numerous tours since then. So it's, it wasn't as emblazoned in their memory as it was in mine. For me, this was like prime experience. It was really intense, you know. So uh, I did gain a lot of information peripherally from these people, but uh, the real stuff was what I had written down way back then. And tell us a little bit about the period in Paris that you write about. I was in Paris interviewing the North Vietnamese uh, delegate to the Paris peace talks, which were trying to settle the Vietnam War. I, I was actively like the London correspondent of Rolling Stone magazine. I had been in Belfast to cover the war. I'd hung out with the IRA. Then I was in Paris. And I, I was in Paris uh, when I was notified I was going to um, be doing the Rolling Stone interview with Keith. And then, you know, flew to the south of France, covered the Cannes Film Festival, and then return to uh, survive living living with Mr. Richards. And all told, I mean, it was was certainly a dramatic time. I mean, that that really is the larger point that there was so much going on in in the culture at the time. Well, there was so much going on in the culture, and you know, <clears throat> I don't. Funnily enough, I, I really don't consider myself an expert on the subject of the Rolling Stones. I mean, yes, I've written three books about them, but I I, I just don't feel that way. But many people consider this to be their most creative period. And if you take a look at their comeback, <clears throat> which begins with Beggar's Banquet, and then you look at Let It Bleed, and then you look at Sticky Fingers, and those might be the three greatest back-to-back-to-back -to -back -to -back albums ever made in rock. And then you look at Exile on Main Street, a double album, which most people under the age of 65 consider to be the greatest Stones album, you would think that this is a period where they really were in full control and they were producing music, you know, that continues to exist and be relevant today. So I think that's something else that makes this book particularly interesting. A lot of the reviewers have said what they really like about the book is the human moments in that, it was all still small enough then and real enough. The superstardom hadn't gotten to a level where there are still times when they're just being people. And that's really what I care about. And I'm happy that people have liked that because that's what I wanted to bring through in this book. And how do you view it all in the context of what celebrity and rock and roll culture is like today? You know, I probably don't know what celebrity and rock and roll culture is like today. I don't know if there is rock and roll culture today. I mean, is Lady Gaga rock and roll? I don't think so. You know, uh, uh, we would be hard pressed. We could probably find bands that would fit the rock and roll paradigm. But what I do know is that it has all melded into one. It has all become the show business. And... I truly doubt uh, that there's anyone who's living the way Mick and Keith were back then. They, they were already very different. Mick was very social. Uh, Keith was still completely an outlaw. But there's no doubt that both of them were living outside of society. And they were making their own rules up as they went along. 
and I'm not certain it's even, forget about rock and roll, I'm not certain anybody can do that anymore these days because of the way everything has changed, most certainly in terms of media. Robert Greenfield, the book is Ain't It Time We Said Goodbye, The Rolling Stones on the Road to Exile. Robert, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Well, it's been my pleasure. Thank you for having me, man. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.